Welcome to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and prison abolition. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Wilson. For this episode, I sat down with Jeannie Austin, a Bay Area librarian and academic who focuses on library services for incarcerated people. And Sarah Ball, a New York City public librarian working inside jails and prisons, providing access to books and information for criminalized and incarcerated people and their families. In this episode, we explore the multifaceted role of prison libraries and the challenges faced by prison librarians in providing access to information and literature within the confines of the correctional system. We delve into the delicate balance between offering valuable services to incarcerated individuals while navigating the authority and constraints imposed by prison officials. Join us as we investigate how prison librarians promote access to information, address potential challenges rooted in the philosophy of rehabilitation, and challenge the dynamics shaped by whiteness, information, and power within prison library systems. We also delve into the ways in which prison censorship specifically targets LGBTQIA individuals and discuss strategies for dismantling biases and inequities. Additionally, we examine the historical and political context that have influenced the evolution of prison libraries, the impact of political ideologies and policies, and the role of education and rehabilitation within prisons. Through enlightening discussions, we uncover the transformative potential of prison library programs, identify the challenges they face, and explore innovative approaches and best practices to enhance their effectiveness. Lastly, we explore future perspectives on prison libraries, emerging trends, the influence of technology, and the importance of raising public awareness and support for these vital programs. This episode also incorporates insights from Dr. Austin's book, Library Services and Incarceration, Recognizing Barriers, Strengthening Access, which offers a comprehensive exploration of the topic. We examine key chapters, including the historical context, the role of information in incarceration, models of direct service, reentry support and programming, and strategies for building institutional support. Furthermore, we discuss several thought-provoking articles that shed light on the impact of prison censorship, content-based bans, and a denial of access to books, as well as the crucial role of community organizations and library and information science professionals in addressing these issues and fostering a more equitable information environment within prisons. Get ready to expand your understanding of prison libraries, their significance within the criminal punishment system, and their potential to empower and transform lives. Thank you for listening. So to get us started, I want to talk a little bit about or have you talk a little bit about what the role of prison libraries is, broadly speaking. I'll jump in first. This is Sarah. Um, So it's interesting because I think that the role of prison libraries varies um, dramatically. Um, from spot to spot. I think that, um, you know, to try and think of them um, as a group is very difficult. And I think that's because, of course, we have these various uh, carceral systems, prisons versus jails. We have, you know, federal, state, and city. We have um, other types of institutions. Um, And I think that the role um, is often very much determined by the people in it and by the administration of a particular facility. Um, I think that there are ideals um, that perhaps library workers and even perhaps library users have um, that we would love to see, um, you know, really like come to life. Um, but for the most part, they can't come to life. Those ideals about what the library can mean and what it is inside of a carceral facility. So I think that um, the role of the prison library um, is up for grabs in a certain way, um, depending Mm -hmm. on who is in power and who's in control. Yeah, I think in addition to everything that Sarah said, which is it's all kind of a mess, honestly, um, with how things actually happen on the ground, But we know from incarcerated people that libraries can play a really major role in what their experience of incarceration is like, that people who are inside 
because of the conditions of incarceration, because it's hard to get books and expensive, because it's hard to get information, because there's not access to the internet, at least not, you know, uh, legal access, um, which means any access is really fraught, that people who are incarcerated often rely on librarians and libraries and other information workers to get even just basic access to information, including information that people I mean, people need all kinds of information, like access to pop culture is one way to just kind of, you know, like keep your mind together or think about the world outside. Um, access to lyrics is a way that people like refine their own skills or stay culturally relevant. Um, in addition to everything else, like have fun to people needing access to information about reentry if they're going to be released, including needing that information to even meet the basic requirements of going to a parole board. And not every, or parole hearing, not every library is providing that kind of information to people. But what I think we know as librarians who do this work is that most prisons are definitely not providing that information to people. And so it falls on librarians, both inside and outside of facilities to begin to at least attempt to meet some of those information needs. What you just said sort of anticipates uh, my follow-up question. I'll probably come back to some of the points that you made, but I wanna um, kind of get at this point. Um, what is the role of prison librarians in navigating like that delicate balance between providing a valuable service to incarcerated people while operating within the constraints and authority of prison that prison officials, you know, set out? Well, I think it varies again so widely. Um, there does have to be a careful navigation, right? Because it's the prison belongs to the prison staff and it's possible to cross a line and be told it's not, there's no way to do these services anymore or to get fired or to get blackballed or to be told that, you know, you can never talk publicly about your work, um, which are all in conversations with prison librarians, things that I've heard about happening. And, um, but there are also instances of prison librarians walking the lines. Uh, you know, there's this, uh, Tammy Arford was a researcher and her dissertation was with prison librarians. And, um, there are a few instances where, like, let's say a prison librarian was told you can't have anything with any kind of nudity, including art books, in your collection. Um, so had to remove all of those books. Sorry to the artist who were relying on them. But as a kind of, like, little, mm, still my library, bought two classic Greek statues of nudes that were placed in really prominent positions in the library and was like, yeah, the warden uses my library for tours. So every time they come in here, I'm pushing against the kinds of restrictions that I experience and they they just are not telling me to stop. You know, I've heard instances, like I think there was a librarian who was told you can't have anything with cuss words, despite the fact that it's mostly adults. Um, and was like, okay, you go through all of my books and find the ones with cuss words in them. <laughs> Like, I don't have time to do this. This is your rule. You enforce it. And of course, it didn't happen because there's, it's like one passing staff who's decided that that's what's going to go on. And then they move on with their life. And maybe they forget that they didn't want any books with cuss words in them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the kinds of demands can be really rigorous or really, really arbitrary, depending on the culture, I think, of among the prison staff and the desires of the warden. Um, but yeah, I think I mostly want to highlight while there are these intense restrictions, like things like you can't have collegial relationships with incarcerated library staff, um, or, you know, maybe everything that a librarian is buying has to be approved by a warden, that librarians don't just buck under those demands and that there are ways of, you know, I'm always about like what is possible, mm -hmm. um, and there are possibilities that exist that are out there. And I think the other issue is that these conversations are very difficult for librarians to have because there are potentially consequences. And 
our main desire, right, is not, like, as professionals, it's not about, like, oh, I want to break rules. It's that our understanding of the role of information is very different than the role of, than the ways that prison systems might understand them. Mm-hmm. And our understanding of the people who use the library inside of prisons or jails is very different in many instances than people whose focus is supposed to be on like the security, however you frame that, of an institution. Um, and I think there are much larger debates to be had around what constitutes uh, safety and security, especially in relation to information access. Yeah, because, I mean, it's not as if safety and security are defined, right? Safety and security are largely contingent on whoever is in the mailroom that day or whoever is in charge of <laughs> uh, reviewing books or whatever, which is usually the person in the mailroom, right? Yeah, and I think that um, it's really interesting because there's these like parallel um uh, collections of information happening, which is like sort of through the official channel of the library. Let's say, you know, in most prisons, there are prison libraries, um, though, you know, we know that there's a lot of vacancies um, in prison librarian positions, but there's perhaps other staff working and incarcerated staff. Um, and then you have the information coming through the mailroom, like you said, and even now, you know, not just through the mailroom, but through you know, phone calls and of course, what's um, the communications on the tablets and things like that, where people are getting information perhaps for themselves, but also for their peers and sharing things. I mean, you know, we certainly know that some people who don't have people like Mm -hmm. on the outside um, may rely on someone else to say, hey, when you call your family, can you ask them to look this thing up for me? Um, You know, I think Jeannie and I both have experience with um, doing reference by mail services and um, we get every possible type of question, but we also know that, um, you know, asking a public library those questions is just one avenue and like that the information is flowing from other places too. And so even though it's not necessarily a library in an official capacity, it's like sometimes the, the way that things are being shared is in the total spirit of the library um, between peers who are inside together. And I think that with, prison librarians it's interesting because since we're both public librarians and we work for public library institutions we have a pretty different um um i don't know if it's that we have a pretty different approach that might just be because we're like in big cities and there's all these other reasons why but Mm -hmm. i do think that there's different expectation um of course and i think that when you talk to prison librarians they're often incredibly isolated and I think that like, if you are geographically isolated, if you're working in a facility with no internet access, so you're isolated in that way as well. Um, and then you're also, um, you know, likely from, let's just say that like the library field as a whole is incredibly white. Mm-hmm. I think this is a known. And so, you know, like um, you may be going in with certain cultural experiences that, um, make it that it makes it difficult to respond to people's interests and needs in a way um, that people are looking for. And I think that like the isolation then furthers those things and it can, um, you know, sort of impact how the services are and the quality of the services for people. So I think that those are some, some factors, but I think is absolutely right. What Jeannie is saying that like people will find a way to get people what they're asking for. And I think that librarians do have sort of like a, relentless, <laughs> I'm going to find what you're asking me for um, attitude often. So um, there's a there's a lot, there's different layers of what's going on, including sort of, you know, what's happening without the, the professionals involved, I, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Thank you both uh, for those very thoughtful responses. I wanted to pick up on um, a couple of things that um, Jeannie said earlier regarding, you know, um, access to information and, you know, having to operate within this context of, you know, censorship, surveillance, uh, and how you have to carefully navigate uh, that system, but also talking about, you know, reading for pleasure, right? And it's incarcerated people 
um, while they, and I know this from, you know, the, the folks that, that I know inside, um, they appreciate political um, books, but they also want other stuff. Like there's other stuff happening in the world um, that, you know, and reading for pleasure, I feel is such an underrated and underappreciated thing in a lot of circles. And I think that providing access to information includes that, right? And and should be attentive, attentive to that. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on, and uh, you said this, Sarah, is, you know, the relationship between, you know, access to information, the powers that be, but also the fact that the field of um, librarians in general is pretty white. And I, I don't want to go too deep into that, right? Um, and I'll put the a link to um one of the articles that uh Jeannie co-authored uh in the show notes so that folks can go and read it for themselves but thinking about you know that framework right between whiteness information and power right and how that shapes uh prison library systems but also puts people and not just librarians because I feel like anyone who's really in relationship with folks on the inside has at some point had to think about, oh, okay, well, this person asked for, you know, something related to their case. I need to print this out and get this sent into them. Or someone from a prison book program gets a request for a specific, you know, book or something um, that is not held within the library and they have to figure out, okay, well, what's the best way to get this information to someone on the inside? Because not only is this information pertinent to, could be pertinent to their case so that they can get out, but it's also, as Jeannie pointed out earlier, important to the reentry process, right? So when you get out, right? And we can think of reentry more broadly, but um, what are your thoughts on that? I'd love to jump in on the question about reading for pleasure, and I'm so glad you asked that. I think that um, that's an incredibly important um, piece of the puzzle, because I do think that when we think about prison censorship, book censorship, um, we often are talking about it in um, groups where, like on like groups of people who are, let's say, politicized, leftists, and we automatically go to thinking about, um, you know, leftist books being censored, which they are. And I would never say that they're not. Of course they are. And um, but I also think that it's so important to also look at everything else that's being censored. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, you look at um, certain states who do publish their banned book lists and you might have like literally every urban fiction novel that has been attempted to be sent into the prison denied. And it says like the same general purpose, like, you know, the content does disrupts the security of the facility or something stupid like that. And um, I think that um, one thing that I hear sometimes in um, when people are talking about people in prison is that there's almost like, and this is, you know, mostly coming from leftists, abolitionists, it's like there's almost an assumption that everyone inside is politicized. Mm -hmm. And that it's almost like romanticizing like the experience of prison, which like, let's not do that. And um, I think that like, it's so, so important to support someone in what they want to read. And if they want to read a political book, if they want to read an abolitionist book, absolutely. But like, you better also bring them that incredible Hulk because that's what they asked for. Like, you know what I mean? Like yes. they want to read something for pleasure and like it even goes beyond that like I encourage all people to read for pleasure thank you you know so I just wanted to jump in on that and I'm sure Jeannie you have just as an enthusiastic response <laughs> yeah I mean definitely I think this is the part of my job I mean I love people getting their information books and there's definitely some people who only read nonfiction and are committed you know to like their life is a life as a researcher but most people, maybe everywhere, read casually and read for pleasure. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's things like 
it's somewhere to put your brain that's not where you are, or it's a way of gaining perspective on the world, or it's just dang fun. You know, sometimes I'm like, I am going to read like a romance novel <laughs> because I just want to be like, <laughs> like yes. this is not my life. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we underestimate just how shitty prisons are and by we not present company, uh, but, you know, a lot of people do, right? And if the relationship that you have with incarcerated folks is contingent upon them reading a certain genre of books, you're doing it wrong, right? If if that is where you're landing and it's like, oh, I'm gonna send you these books, I can't send you these other books. I'm not sure, I know people that do that. I Maybe they exist out there, or I'm sure they do, but, um, you're missing the fact that prison is shitty place, right? I know when I talk to people um, inside my sons included that in those 15 minutes, we may not talk about prison at all, at all. And it's like, they wanna know what's happening out here or some cool thing that, you know, went on or, you know, something like that. It's that escapism is part of getting through. Right. And I, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that that a lot of us get that. Um, but I also wanted to say uh, something. And as someone who uh, for a long time had struggled after, you know, I think I definitely burned out on on a number of different fronts professionally and academically and all of that stuff. But um, it the joy of reading like went away for me for a few years and it was really really hard to read like nonfiction books and if you're in this space and obviously i'm co-hosting a podcast and we talk about books all of the time even though that's not our primary focus on on this podcast um like that was really difficult right and i renewed my relationship with reading by reading with my ears so the fact that people in prison don't have access to audiobooks in the same way, right? And out here, like I access all of my audiobooks through my local library um, and on YouTube. Thank you, YouTube University, um, for providing that. But the deep ableism that exists within a carceral system that says that this is the only acceptable form and you have to read you know, hard copy books, but then you can only read the books that we deem, you know, adhere to a very narrow and arbitrary framework. Um, <laughs> and then it can get drilled down from there, right? It's like, is it on the list? Oh, it should be added to the list. Um, where does this list exist, right? And when we think about that in the context of, um, I, I think it was Sarah who brought up the, the banned book uh, you know, banned book lists, right? Um, and it's something I've been teaching for, goodness gracious, 20 plus years now. Um, and it's like to, to see it happening at such a rate and such a level out here. And it's like, well, if you'd been paying attention to what's been happening inside of prisons, you would not be shocked. And if you were fighting for prisoner rights and need I say, you know, abolition, um, <laughs> then you would understand just why everything that is currently happening is in a lot of ways a reflection of the very issues um, that incarcerated folks have been fighting against and all of us out here are supporting um, the destruction of the system. I mean, I think part of doing this work of maybe of being a librarian at all, but especially in conditions where people's access to anything is so limited is really thinking expansively about what it is to be a person in the world. And all of, you know, I like to be self-reflective, maintain myself as probably many people listening through like all kinds of information access, including like reading the news in the morning or listening to a podcast or et cetera. You know, it's very multimedia the way that we are in the world. And then we also have the, those of us who have it, have the advantage of choice 
in that excess. Um, you know, part of maintaining a sense of self is just getting to make choices. And I think there's this ties back, maybe the through line back to that whiteness and librarianship. Um, kind of, you know, the, the repercussions of that, especially when we're talking about libraries inside, um, that if people are not aware of the many, many ways that anyone might use information to sustain themselves, then they're more likely to pull from their like cultural assumptions and to, to not think deeply on like what is security and safety in relation to this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think often when I come to this question, I think early on when we started doing reference by mail, we were internally um, debating not does a library provide lyrics to hip hop songs because they obviously do, there's the internet and a library, but whether or not we had staff capacity to do that because it's a big mm -hmm. demand. Um, and then in the middle, and like when we debate something, we take like six months to make a decision. <laughs> um, it's very slow. And in the middle of that, we got a letter from somebody who was like, I'm in isolation. I've been here for years. The only way that I'm like, maintaining my sanity is with the lyrics that you all are sending me, mm. you know? And then we were just like, okay, well, we have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can't hear that from somebody and say, like, I'm going to take it away. Um, and there might be people who would, you know, who bring cultural assumptions into this work who would say, like, this for me falls within the category of, like, quote unquote violence without like ever reflecting on, I don't know, the lyrics to like a country song or like mm. a lot of popular hip hop, you know, uh, or not hip hop, I'm sorry. I meant um, like pop music on the radio, Absolutely. like where sex and violence comes up or whatever, if that's how you're defining it. Or you could be like, this is creative content that people have made, you know, for like a myriad reasons. I think that like one thing, um, one thing that's especially important about getting people what they want and as far as, um, you know, what they want to read, what they want to learn about is that it contributes to people's confidence. And I just think that like in an unsafe environment, having confidence, um, becomes that much more important. And I know that like, um, when somebody is feeling vulnerable and they feel like they don't have the things they need, they feel lost um you know it's just like so unstable i feel like the the conditions that we see on a regular basis doing this work are so chaotic and so unstable and so harmful and cruel and i think that like having yeah like these small things that kind of make you feel like you're you mm -hmm. <laughs> um it just it just becomes more meaningful and it, I, I wish it didn't have to be that way you know and it's sort of like the way that everything is heightened inside is terrible but it is true like it, it's sort of like um you know we get a lot of positive feedback from library users and I think that like it can sometimes feel a little bit warped because it's sort of like oh my gosh like you know, you're here giving out these books is so wonderful. And like, I can't believe you remembered me. I can't believe you brought the book I asked for. You know, it's just like this incredibly positive feedback. And it's sort of like, can't, that can't exist without the the lack, you know, it's like, absolutely that's the response. And so then I think that like, um, you some days you can feel like, wow, what we're doing is amazing. And it's like, well, because it's responding to this incredible problem that's been created by the system. But um you know, I wish it was more than responding. I wish it was changing it. And I think it's changing it in a personal level with people. Um, but then a lot of questions come up for us constantly about, you know, like, how does it change it on a bigger level? And, mm -hmm. and are we, are we helping to legitimize the system by providing something good? And these huge questions come up, but like, I think that like, despite the conditions creating um, these responses that we're seeing and hearing, I think that like, they're still real. And that like, when someone feels like, wow, you remembered that I wanted this thing and now I get to connect with it and feel like I'm me for this moment. Like, that's just, 
um, it's like a big moment. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thank you both um, again for just incredible, um, thoughtful, incredibly thoughtful responses there. I think uh, picking up on your point there, uh, Sarah, about, you know, um, the how different materials really do contribute to someone's sense of, you know, confidence, especially when they're feeling extremely vulnerable. And, um, and your point about, you know, uh, this dichotomy between, you know, everything about incarceration, about carcerality in general, is about deprivation. So we're depriving you of, you know, your community, your family, relationships, um, information, um, you know, being able to build a life for yourself outside of a system that's going to surveil you for the rest of your life, that's going to treat you as, quote unquote, other uh, forever, is contrasted by, you know, the kind of abundance that people get or feel when they get a book uh, or something that's not to kind of romanticize or overstate or say, oh my gosh, you know, books are the end all be all, but books are really freaking important. They're really freaking important to a lot of people. And I know I, you know, just my own personal experience and I'll just use, you know, my, my sons, for example, in terms of um, having those conversations and, you know, for years, we've been talking about, you know, um, the patriarchy <laughs> and, and, and toxic masculinity and all of these things and how those things are really deeply rooted and embedded in, you know, uh, in a carceral system. And to have conversations around particular texts, right? So the moment that they received, and I'm not going to name the books, um, you know, uh, different texts, right, from different organizations or individuals or what have you, and they saw it in black and white, and they were like, oh, that's what you were talking about. Oh, I get it. And it's not like it was an immediate kind of transformation. I think that, you know, the kind of the transformative power of books is the thing that officials are afraid of, right? That the system is afraid of. Because not only do people benefit from having or seeing themselves in the books and, you know, seeing themselves reflected, um, representation and, and all of that stuff, but also thinking about issues in a very critical way that actually transform these systems and get them to think about the kind of power dynamics that exist that are inherent within uh, a system, that that is something that they're terrified of, even if officials don't use that language, right? I'm not sure that they could. Um, I'm not sure that they could put it in those terms. But also, I think to your point about, um, you know, these individual acts of resistance, right, which are important, right? They're important. Uh, no one's saying, let's not do that. Or, you know, uh, we, we need to, you know, put that aside. Um, but that it's a both and right? That it's a both act, that we're thinking about the these personal acts of resistance while we're also thinking about systemic change and ways to transform the system more broadly. And how can we have an impact, you know, in that way? Because in that moment, for the person who's receiving um, the lyrics or a text, whatever the text is, um, that is transformative for them. That is hugely powerful. And it can make their day, their week, their month, right? Uh, and I don't know. Um, I really appreciate you both responding to um, to to that question. Uh, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, and I think I'm not sure I'm shifting gears here. I, I think I'm just adding to to this conversation. I want to talk a little bit about um, how prison censorship targets LGBTQIA plus people. Yeah, on this, um, there's a pretty egregious instance of this that played out in Washington, um, ultimately to the benefit of the person inside. But there was a case for instance, so maybe we should start by saying, yes, <laughs> this is happening. It is not good. Um, the way that 
prisons have framed access to LGBTQ content is that it is a safety concern, um, in part because people might be identified as LGBTQ plus by the materials that they have access to or the materials in their cell. So an instance of this that's very egregious is in Washington state, there was a person who had a copy of um, the book Trans Bodies, Trans Selves, which is an incredible resource if you are interested in any kind of resource guide and health information for trans people, highly recommend it. Um, it's a nice thick book, very thorough. And the person um, was informed that they couldn't have access to the book because it created a safety risk for themselves. Um, some might say, what? Because wouldn't for people who are trans having access to information about how to stay healthy as a trans person, um, how to understand your body, how to understand what kinds of medical interventions other trans people may or may not have engaged in, be like self-affirming and useful and help you stay more safe. But the logic of the prison was that having access to this book meant that other people who apparently in the logic of the prison did not know that this person was trans, that now people would know that they were trans because they had a trans book. And so then they would be targeted by other incarcerated people for being trans. There's a lot of places where you might raise an eyebrow in that story. Um, and I'm happy to say that the ACLU actually got involved in this happening and was able to make sure that trans bodies, trans selves was not on the, ultimately on the banned books list and that people were able to get access to it. Um, that said, I think, and Sarah, I would love to hear more from you about this. A lot of LGBTQ content is viewed um, kind of generally, not only as a security concern, but as like lascivious, you know, or however you say it. Um, like there, if, if systems are operating in under a like homophobic and transphobic logic, then they're going to view anything that's related to LGBTQ identity as like endorsing perversity. Mm -hmm. um, and that has real consequences because we know that there are queer and trans people inside um, everywhere. The other effect of it is that if people know how to say the right medical, like being trans and doing medical intervention on the outside is not easy. Trans people tell each other, here are the exact words to use, <laughs> you know, when you talk to like this counselor um, so that you can get like your insurance to approve this type of like hormones or surgery or whatever when people want it. It's a whole, there's a whole network of us in the shadows saying these words to each other. Um, if people don't have access to that language, even if a prison system has said like, we provide trans affirming healthcare, if people don't know what the words are, unless there's somebody there who acts as an advocate for them, then that that forecloses the avenue of access, you know. Um, it can really mean, I mean, which I would assume, I'm not the state, but I would assume from some states is not only a kind of like, now we're not seen as like fully endorsing the fact that trans people exist, but also as kind of like a budget saving measure. I don't know. There are other reasons too, I'm sure. Oh, we know. We know, right? <laughs> we know because we hear, right? It's just, yes. it's awful. I think that there's um something that obviously we we see a lot, which is like self-censorship. Not, I think that's the wrong way to say it, but like, you know, that you have a collection and, and when you have a collection of, you know, queer and trans writers and, and titles, um, that of course, like some people won't feel safe checking out those books. And I think that that's something that um, is important for like a library worker to develop a rapport with patrons and find ways to like find that moment to be like, hey, like, you know, come over here, I have something for you or something like that. But I do think that like, um, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like we hear often, we hear, you know, officers making comments, misgendering people on purpose, um, you know, looking at what people are checking out and, and, and making a comment about that. And you absolutely see people holding back from getting what they really want. Um, and I think another thing that happens is that like when we're talking about lack of access to books, sometimes it's like 
almost like um, logistical and like architectural and environmental barriers, right? So like in a facility, they might say, um, you know, to bring this group of people to the library, all movement has to pause because um, it would be a safety risk for these folks to inter interact with these folks. And so that's all just too difficult. So we're just not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of thing happens so much and there's absolutely no um, like sort of oversight. I mean, like there's no, there's no sort of policy that could actually be adhered to like in a meaningful way, like whatsoever. And so it's sort of like when those policy answers come in, they might be helpful to a certain degree, but it's like, there's always the discretion of, you know, a person, an officer, a someone who says, uh, like, it's too crazy. We're not doing it. And so then you're denying people access to the library or information or whatever it may be um, because of quote unquote security risks even though, like Jeannie was saying, not providing those books is also um, a threat to someone's safety. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that um, when you think about that, you know, prisons have libraries, right? Um, and having a library doesn't mean that everyone that's incarcerated has access to that library. And even if they have access to that library, that there are a lot of restrictions that are placed on, you know, on the numbers of books, the types of books, and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, regarding your point in terms of the um, arbitrariness, uh, and, you know, even if there is a policy that's on the books, the practice is the thing, right? It's like, you can have policies all day long, but that doesn't mean that people will follow those policies. They use the policies to say, look, we have a policy. I don't know what you people are complaining about. There's a policy, right? And it's like in that system, right? When the people who are in power and have to, and are the ones dictating what the terms are, um, you don't necessarily, you don't win, right? Like what's the win there? The win is, you know, you keep having to appeal to them and fight them and they can still say no, right? And people still do, which is, you know, to their credit, right? No one's saying stop fighting or, you know, don't, um, don't appeal uh, the kinds of, you know, ridiculous forms of censorship. And I think this is a really important moment in talking about libraries inside to say a lot of, most jails don't have a library full of just kind of like what you would find at a public library and many prisons don't either yeah. um you know there's only mandate there's only a legal mandate that there be access to the law whatever that looks like and that there be access to like base religious texts so like bibles and qurans and etc and for the american correctional association which is like the the group that goes through prisons and says yes this prison is doing what we want it to do um there's only a requirement that there be one person with a library degree on staff, no matter the size of the prison system. So this goes back to how Sarah opened with like this huge variance, right? Is that some states like Colorado and Washington state have it as part of the work of their state library to provide what some people might think of as recreational, or we might just think of as like more holistic library services to people inside. Um, those libraries still might suffer with things of like, how do you get staff and retain them in the environment where people are coming into a prison every day? But some states um, have just one contracted, you know, part-time person with an MLIS degree who may not spend the majority of their time inside of the prisons um, and rather is kind of working as an outside decision maker around what collections are available and potentially is training incarcerated library workers to run their library systems. What happens in those instances is sometimes that person leaves. And so a prison might, a prison system, a state system might get certified. Sorry if this is too library for everyone who's listening, just tune out. No, um, it's brilliant. It's, absolutely, <laughs> no, it's brilliant, please. Um, so a, a, a state you know, prison system might even get certified by the American Correctional Association standards and then their prison librarian who's just a consultant 
anyway leaves whatever there's not necessarily a motivation to fill that position again until mm-hmm. ACA accreditation is coming up mm-hmm. um so we're pretty certain there are entire states talking you know tens of thousands or more uh people who are incarcerated who have no librarian that is providing like is like making sure that there's some kind of library that's actually happening and in those instances we do see really amazing things happen like letter writing campaigns that are run by incarcerated library workers out to public libraries asking for book donations you know um and i definitely i don't want to discount the amazing work that incarcerated people do to get access to information but that is also really really hard work that people shouldn't be positioned to have to do mm-hmm. um if 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 even like the basic standards were being met consistently only to say yes all of that <laughs> and i think that um you know i I don't know that this may work in some places, but sometimes I think about these, you know, little free libraries that sometimes pop up in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know if they look different in other places, but in New York, it's like, you know, like a soda can and like a copy of like Dale Carnegie or something, which like mm-hmm. sure people still love him. But like, do you know what it does? It just doesn't, it's like, it's sort of, you need a library worker to really help. The 48 laws of power are not like, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a very very popular book um not my favorite book but um <laughs> um but you know it's sort of just like that that having a library worker who's like that's their whole job <laughs> is um incredibly valuable especially if they have and then of oh, this list can go on and on and on but let's say like training and access to be able to talk to other people who are doing the work um Jeannie and Jeannie's colleagues have done like this incredible convening of prison library workers um, um, last year. And it was, I was um, reluctantly inspired because I'm cynical. And um, I think that like being able to connect with other people who are doing the work um, and being able to talk, you know, directly to our library users and say, you know, what do you want? Like, what do you need? And like, how can we help? I think is, um huge and so then it doesn't turn into you know a little free library with like a soda can in it (laughs) exactly exactly and i i think that you know that point regarding the relationship with you know incarcerated people is important and as you pointed out earlier um there's a sort of distance between um sometimes library workers and incarcerated people by virtue of the fact that, you know, you're operating under the constraints of what the, you know, DOC requires of you. So there, while opportunities may exist to uh, cultivate those relationships and those conversations where you can say, hey, you might want to read this or think about this or, you know, that brings up a really good point. What about this other thing over here? Um that it makes it more difficult, right? And I, I, I'm thinking of so many different things there, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a pin in that and um, kind of pivot a little bit to thinking about the ways that community organizations um, come in and fill the gap that exists, right, in between the what librarians are able to provide, prison librarians specifically are able to provide to folks on the inside, and because of the constraints and um, the ways that community organizations are just responding uh, to requests that people have for, you know, different reading materials. And they're working with, you know, limited budgets, um, no budgets most of the time. It's donations and uh, wish lists and and what have you. So I'm wondering if you have thoughts um, around that. Absolutely. I think that it is um, really important to look at like those those differences in terms of like the level of scrutiny so like we knew that that groups like books through bars in in multiple cities across the us have faced incredible pushback um there are state prison systems who have tried to make it so that books through bars is not allowed to send books at all um that they tried that in new york state and thankfully it was um 
stopped, but, um, you know, but those groups, um, are able to operate with, even though the stuff that they're trying to send in does get censored and it does get sent back. Um, I think even just the level of anonymity of like, let's say the volunteer pool, um, I think is an asset because, um, you know, they're sort of, um, they don't have to answer to like the institution itself. Um, they're able to push back, um, as a separate entity. Um, I think that, um, just individuals, like, let's say like, you know, having pen pals, having pen pals inside who you send books to, I think, um, you're able to, to do that in ways that can protect, um, the person and yourself. Um, I think there are a lot of different ways, um, to go about things sort of a lot more under the radar. And I also, I always try and encourage um, community groups who are doing things like sort of fully, you know, above board and, you know, going in with, you know, in like legitimate way, legitimate ways and, and sort of official collaborations with say, like a group that's officially going inside the prison. I still think that those groups should try and always work as much directly with the people who are incarcerated as they can so like that's one of the reasons we love the reference by mail service is because it's not something that we're like and we're partnering with the facility to ensure that this program goes forward no it's letters it's letters back and forth you know so i think there are always ways to kind of get more direct with it um but that um that can still bring um you know certain sort of limitations or risks um whereas like individuals have a lot more kind of wiggle room as to what they can try you know because i do think that like because everything is so varied in like the security theater at each different place and it's so varied that like there's a lot to try and i think that that's an important thing to remember when you're feeling like the system is this omnipotent thing it's like no try a new thing you know always always new ways yeah, I mean, I think the work of Books Through Bars groups is so incredibly inspirational, and especially the ways that they maneuver multiple spaces. You know, some have done the work to get established as publishers or distributors so that they can be approved vendors for library or for people who are incarcerated. Um, I'm always, you know, I'm just like a huge fan, so glad. And it's also a way for people, if you're new to this podcast, for any reason, if you've been thinking, how do I get involved? An amazing entry point in starting to do this work because a lot of these groups are volunteer focused and they'll give you like the full up and down what information can go into the facilities that they serve and how they get around, um, like any kinds of restrictions that they've encountered, how to advocate very well for getting books inside. Um, I also see them get filling this gap which is very large that some might say huh what if there had been libraries there it's not that i think libraries should edge out books to prisoners groups or um books through bars groups in any way it, but i think it is i think it does raise a question about um how little maybe libraries have historically done and how little public advocacy there's been to make sure that libraries are actually inside of facilities and functioning well and well-funded um, and that people are able, you know, to just get the information that they need. Absolutely. Well, what I'm hearing is that you're coming back for another episode, right? That's, that's what I'm hearing there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to cheat a little bit here. I have a final question and um, it's really two questions, but um what are your thoughts on the future of like prison library programs in terms of, you know, things like technologies, tablets, um, the lack of digital resources and a kind of curation um, of digital resources that are, that's happening across, you know, departments of corrections at all levels, right? Um, but also, is there anything else that we didn't talk about? And I know that there's just so much. Again, I have like four pages of questions, so I could talk to you for like seven more hours and, and it would be good with me. But um, is there anything else that you'd like to add that I didn't uh, 
mention or that didn't come up that you feel is uh, really important to, to talk about right now? Thank you for this wonderful and easy closer. Um, I think something I would love to highlight for all of the kinds of, you know, thumbs down things that we've had to say, this is a moment in which librarianship as a profession, I think is steering more towards attention to how libraries have historically functioned inside of facilities and how to make it better. Um, I do think we're on the cusp of something big. We're also about to fall off the cliff <laughs> of um, what technology can do. Anyone who's listening, if you have ever gone to like, I'll say, go to the smart communications webpage and look at how they market themselves to facilities and then whatever they might say about reentry, and you'll see two very different kinds of ways of representing information. Um, you know, there's a lot of like surveillance and restriction or saying like, now there's a bunch of e-resources available through the tablets, which one of the big companies has said, but then you find out they're all just Project Gutenberg books. So they're books mm -hmm. that are like freely available to everybody and also published from 1960 or 1926 and before. So just let that, you know, we, we understand what the past was like and how it carries into the present. Um, but yeah, some really racist stuff in there, which especially, I mean, anywhere is terrible, but in an environment where that's the only information people are getting, really bad. Um, I can say, and while I can't speak for the library system right now, that there is possibility, and like I can finally say this out loud now, like one of the things we've been able to do in my library system in very close partnership with the Sheriff's Department um, is we have actually just made the libraries a, a curated collection of the library's e-resources available through tablets inside, and they're all available for free. And part of our logic behind that on the library system side is just the people who are incarcerated in San Francisco are our library patrons. Some of them we know were like mega patrons before they were inside. Many of them are going to use the library again when they're outside. And so if we're not there for them, when they're in the jail, we're really failing them as people who trust us, you know, mm -hmm. to be ways of getting information. Um, so hopefully more on that whole project is coming out soon. As far as we know, it's the first time it's happened. We're very excited about it and um, very excited to be in discussion with other librarians about the work that went into making that possible. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, like Jeannie's saying, like offering resources for free is a way to prevent them being then them costing money right it's sort of like preempting um these predatory pricing models um is incredibly important i feel like the um pandemic showed us this possible future of um you know sort of relying strictly on technology and so i think that every time we talk about um offering um e-resources um, it has to be sort of like these e-resources can never, should never, will never replace physical libraries um, and not just physical libraries, but like human contact. And like, of course, we had to limit that during the pandemic. But the way in which departments of correction around the country did that, we know was like so flawed and like, you know, contact was eliminated for families, but no safety precautions were taken inside. So it's like we know that they will um, sort of use an emergency like that um, in unfair ways. And, and I think that like when we're talking about technology, um, like access has to happen in ways that not only, um, not only aren't like, like gouging everyone and, and like sort of cruel in, in taking people's money, but you know, also kind of trying to reverse some of um, the damage that's done by separating people from, from um, learning. And I think it's like incredibly hard um, because so many of the companies that provide tech for prisons um, are like offering them for quote unquote free to the prisons and to the jails. And I think it's like, um, you know, so hard to say no to. I mean, New York City had um, one tablet company that was, it was a for-profit 
company, but they weren't charging the end user anything. And then it was just, you know, more economical for them to go with JPay. Um, and so they switched. And, um, you know, I think that it, it's they make it so easy um, to choose the worst option. And I think that, like, while there are exceptions, the number of exceptions um, um, needs to grow and, and to be used as an example. But it's really tricky, I think. Um, and the thing that I fear most is that it will be used to replace um, human contact. And um, I know that human contact can also happen through the machine. <laughs> um, but I think that, um, you know, in that case, you have to add in all those other layers of, you know, lack of privacy and, and just the, you know, the missing people, the, the not being able to see someone's face when, when you're, you know, asking them what book they want and those things. But um, I think that like, you know, we know from working in public libraries, not inside, but we know from just like public libraries in the community that people who are coming home from prison are just like so in need of tech skills and are feeling really um, out of it when they've been away for a long time. So um, there has to be something there, but it's just like, it's very hard for me to be optimistic. <laughs> Jeannie, you're the optimistic one, and I appreciate you for that. And I feel like, um, I don't know, I see doom and gloom when I think about it, but I also think that um, there are some amazing examples um, being tried right now. Yeah, I mean, all of it, right? Yes, and. <laughs> um, and especially, we, we're high, we don't want as librarians to replace ourselves with e-resources. And here's a little tidbit. Not everybody understands how to use an app, <laughs> you know, um, like still part of our role as we brought the e-resources in is doing this digital literacy component that is like tech changes so quick um, and the tech inside does not. And that means that like even a year, you know, inside people might be totally disoriented when they're re-encountering any of this technology. So I do... I do, I fear the worst, yeah, sure, um, about being replaced. And I think there are many companies who would be fine if that happened. But I also think that there, I hope that there are kind of wedge arguments that we can make to make sure that we're still providing face-to-face -face at least some kind of library service. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think you both know my take on that um, already. But yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point about uh, providing digital literacy. Digital literacy is information literacy, right? It's um, pertinent. Uh, the pace of change that is happening with technology, and this is something I, I talk a lot about with, you know, the folks that I know that are inside and recently uh, released uh, folks as well, is walking them through like things how to use a smartphone right and um those aren't things like the prison system is not necessarily invested in trying to teach people these things because they unless they can monetize it in some way and even if resources are free uh even if resources are available using tablets in most places, if not all, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is not free, right? So the thing is, you know, we've paid for a lot of these resources already through taxes, right? We've already paid for them. Um, so it's just infuriating to me um, <laughs> as someone who spends a tremendous amount of money making sure that folks I know have access to um, to the tablet so that they can, you know, listen to music, watch movies. Um, the books are really, the list of books is really limited. And not just that, but the thing that happens oftentimes is that someone could be reading a book and a week from now, the book may not be on the tablet because they decided, you know, that they're going to refresh the list or something like that. So it's, there's so many different things. And I wish, I wish we had more time to kind of drill down into uh, these other issues. There's so many other questions that, you know, I was um, 
would love to to talk about with both of you. And um, I was serious about my invitation earlier. You have a standing invitation to come on the podcast anytime you want to uh, talk about um, these issues or expand on anything that you know that we discussed and touch on some things that we haven't talked about, including including Jeannie's amazing book. Um, and uh, yeah, do you want to do you want to do a plug uh, on your on your book, Jeannie? Um, sure. <laughs> Thank you. And thanks so much for having us. I think um, I mean, you can tell we could go on forever <laughs> um, and just really appreciate getting to be in conversation with you. So my book is kind of a bit of everything. It's very much a textbook, sorry to say, but it follows. Um, you know, I've been in this work for over 15 years. I think Sarah, maybe even longer than me. And there are a lot of things I've learned along the way that would have been really useful to know starting out, even just like what are various architectural models of prisons. But one of the biggest questions is like, how did we get here? Um, so there's some theory and history background before, and then there's a chapter about um, technology. And then the second half of the book moves into actually different examples of library services that are happening all across the country. Um, part of us having been so disconnected for so long is that we've all been kind of building from the ground up when we get going um, and when we're developing new programs. And so I'm really hoping that the book can act both as a tool to get out of that kind of like rehabilitate or punish mindset, which we know are completely like interlocked with one another um, very carrot and stick in how they're implemented and into more of a mindset of when we're talking about people who are incarcerated, we're talking about people and library patrons. Um, and then, yeah, just a broad range of examples of library services that are actually happening and a few ideas for some things that maybe can happen in the future. And the title of the book? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's useful. Um, <laughs> it is called Library Services and Incarceration, Recognizing Barriers, Increasing Access. I think that's what it's called. Strengthening Access, but yes. Oh my gosh, thank you. I don't know. I just it's, a, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Like, I, I just, um, thank you. I'm not trained as a librarian, but clearly I feel like, um, and I didn't get a chance, and I, I said this uh, before we started recording, I didn't get a chance to actually... Um, order the book in time. I caught COVID and then all hell broke loose as a result of that. Um, but, you know, the, getting what I could get from, um, you know, the table of contents, the uh, commentary and all of this stuff uh, on the book, it's not just a book for librarians that I want to emphasize that, at least in my perspective, thinking about, you know, the um, things like uh, carceral histories in the U.S. and it's like, your chapter two and talking about the historical factors there. I think that's something that we could all think a little bit more about, but also as you move into, you know, later chapters talking about information and incarceration um, as well and the kinds of models that exist in terms of, you know, direct service uh, and so on and so forth. I think that those are things that as, you know, many of us who are doing, um, abolitionist work would want to think about as well. So it's not just, it, you know, for librarians in my view. Um, but yeah, I want to thank you both so much, so much for um, sharing the space with me uh, today and, um, you know, sharing your brilliance. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Jeannie. Thank you, Kim. It was really wonderful to talk with you. And I really enjoyed being on with you, Jeannie, too, as always. Yes, thank you so, so much. And please, um, any library workers out there who want to get into the, like, the real professional conversation, please reach out to us.